0: The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionrowbiblechurch.com. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. We find ourselves finishing up the second chapter of Romans today and there are some very interesting turns in this passage. Let's just set it in our mind from the beginning. Romans chapter two, beginning in verse 25 through the end of the chapter. Paul says, For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law. But if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision so if the uncircumcision uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision and he who is physically uncircumcised if he keeps the law will not he judge you who through having the letter of the law who through the letter of the law having the letter of the law and circumcision are a transgressor of the law For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is the circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. At the heart of... Expository preaching is a commitment. It's a serious commitment. It was a commitment that I spoke of with the elders before I came here, and they certainly challenged and charged me with before I came here as pastor. We believe that the Bible is the very living word of God, that every single word, every single particle, every single prepositional phrase, everything is God-breathed, inspired, inerrant, and infallible by a holy God. It's profitable, God says, for life and for godliness, all of it in total. If the Bible is God's word, if the Bible is God's word to us and God's word for us, then the most important and the most logical thing to do for a preacher standing in the pulpit is to simply let God's word do its work, is to unleash it, is to explain it. That's our commitment here at Mission Road Bible Church. It's to go verse by verse through the Bible. Oh, sure, there's a place for topical expressions of God's word. But by and large, we want to take God's word as it flows verse by verse. If you've ever wondered, why do we just go verse by verse through the Bible? Someone asked me that, and the answer is really simple. That's the way God wrote it, verse by verse. Now, there's a glorious side to expository preaching. We're constantly coming across new treasures that jump out of every verse. We look deeper into texts that we've never looked at before or not as intently or deeply as we have before. But there's another side of expository preaching. Sometimes when you have a preach the next verse method, there are texts that are tough, Texts that seem from another and for another time. Texts on which you might not have ever picked to preach if you were committed to preaching just what was interesting to you or what you think might be applicable. Can I just be honest with you? This is one of those passages today. I was uh, asked this week by a friend of mine, what are you preaching on Sunday? And I simply said, circumcision. He said, ah, tell me how that goes for you. It's true. We need to talk today about circumcision and that's the importance of the role of circumcision in God's redemptive plan. I wish I could eavesdrop on so many of you this afternoon at your lunch conversations. I'm gonna to try to be as appropriate as possible, but you may have some questions to talk about with your kids that I'm gonna let you guys do. God picked this, I didn't pick it. Now I do believe that this, this passage has volcanic uh, impact in our life. It is a massive uh, turn in Paul's argument as he moves through the text. But it does force us to deal with circumcision and the reality of it. And the reason is Paul's very graphic in this passage to talk about a circumcision that's of the flesh and a circumcision that's of the heart. And we have to understand the the nuances and the differences of others. So let's dive in together as appropriately as possible. Can we? Can we? Circumcision, very simply, is the removal of the foreskin of the male reproductive organ. God chose this action. God chose this ritual. God initiated this rite as a sign and a symbol and a representation of his covenant promise with his people. The promise he made to Abraham... The first mention of circumcision in the Bible is when God instructed Abraham to circumcise every male child in his household, including his servants, and that's in Genesis 17, 10. God said, I'm going to choose you doing this to show what my promise means to you. Now, if you're like me, you have to say, really? Why is that? Now, ultimately, the answer is God chose it. But you need to understand a little bit about what was happening in the ancient Near East. There were multiple cultures that were constantly in collision, multiple cultures that were fighting for their identity. The Jews and Israel would be one of those fighting for its own identity before God. And God chose this ritual and this rite and this surgical procedure as a very clear and a very graphic and a very poignant Defense of his love and covenant relationship with his people. You say, why? Well, without getting into great detail, you would understand that if a Jewish male were to go in and have sexual relations with a woman of another culture, she would say, this is not like the culture I came from. That was supposed to distinguish them, to keep them apart from the foreign countries, Genesis 17, 11 says, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and you. That's God and Abraham, specifically God and the Jews. The custom was performed on the eighth day after birth, according to Genesis 17, 12, Genesis 21, 4, Philippians 3, 5. It was at this time that the name was given to the baby boy. We find that out in Luke 1:59 and in Luke 2, 21, happened with Jesus, in the early history of the Hebrew people, circumcision was performed, are you ready for this? By the Father with a sharpened rock of flint. But the surgical task was eventually handed over to specialists and then to priests. Circumcision was serious. It was serious to the people of God, it was serious to God. It was required of Jewish males as a physical sign of the covenant between the Lord and his people. In fact, Any male not circumcised was said to be, quote, cut off from his people, Genesis 17, 14. And also regarded regarded as a familial covenant breaker, according to Exodus 12, 48. The Jews came to take great pride in circumcision. In fact, it became a trophy of their spiritual and national superiority. They would look at other nations, at other cultures, and say, we are superior because God has given us this sign. Now, this surgical procedure fostered a spirit of exclusivism among the Jews. Instead of a missionary zeal they were to have to reach out to other nations as God intended, they said, we have this sign, we have this seal. This means God loves us more than and instead of the people around us. I think it's interesting, a daily prayer of a strict Jew, Jewish male at the time of Jesus, was to thank God, quote, that I am neither a woman, a Samaritan, nor a Gentile, end quote. In other words, his pride was in his Jewishness, and his Jewishness was physically defined by his circumcision. Here's a fact that's important to our text this morning. Gentiles began to be identified by the Jews not just as Gentiles and not just as non-Jews, but they were actually defined as the uncircumcision. We read it today. It was a term of disrespect, of derision, and the implication was that a non-Jewish person was outside the circle of God's covenant either because he was not circumcised or uh, she was a mother of a male who was not circumcised. Let's go a little further. The terms circumcised and uncircumcised became emotionally charged in the time of the New Testament writers. It brought the Gentiles not closer to God, but the people of God, the Jews who were supposed to be introducing God to them, it actually pushed them further away. This issue began to bring discord in the church the early church in Jerusalem and elsewhere. We read last week, let me just remind you, that one of the first early church heresies that was being spread about, not only by some church leaders, but, but by the apostle Peter himself, we read it last week in Galatians chapter two, was this. You can be a Christian, but since Christ the Messiah was Jewish, then you're really joining Christian Judaism, Therefore, to be a Christian, Acts 15, Galatians 2, people were teaching you had to be circumcised or have your family or your children circumcised to be in the covenant and to be a Christian. Peter himself was teaching that, such that Paul had to publicly rebuke Peter, forever canonized in the book of Galatians as teaching error. Error. It brought a great division in that early church. Ephesians says that God wanted one body male, female, Jews, Gentiles, one body of believers between Him. And yet they were still fighting over circumcised versus uncircumcised. The Jews thought they had not only, that they not only had, but they actually owned the praise of God. God looked in a Jewish mind at the Jews and said, you are my people, you've been circumcised in my way on the eighth day as I've said, so therefore you own my praise. I look at you as my special people. But I want you to look for a moment at the end of the passage we're considering today, at the end of verse 29. Paul says, but he is Jew who is one inwardly and circumcision is that which is of the heart or by the Spirit, not by the letter, and look at this. And his praise is not from men, but from God. The direction of this passage ends up in figuring out if our life, if our religion, if our pursuit of religious exercises, if our understanding of externalism and internalism, of religious rites and ceremonies... One of those is going to be an entire category, and the other is going to be a very simple category. You say, what do you mean by that? One pursuit of religion is going to solicit the praise of men. Another kind is going to solicit, this is amazing, the praise of God. We talk all the time about praising God. We praise God together this morning. Aaron encouraged us, let's praise God together. We should be praising God. God. I hope it strikes you as a little odd, as strangely curious, that in this passage, we find out that there is a person that God praises. God is looking for someone to praise. Who is that person? Well, we're going to study that together. It informs us of the amazing reality, the awesome possibility that we could actually be, strange as it sounds, a recipient Of the praise of God. Now, in order to understand that together, I want us to look at this passage. We'll break it down like this. Three considerations for receiving praise from God. That's where the passage ends, so we're going to work through the passage to that end. Three considerations, three things you need to think about for receiving praise from God. I don't know about you, but that's me. I want to be in the category where God looks down and praises... It sounds odd to even say me... You? Well, he breaks that down beginning in verse 25 with first, you have to consider the worthy, worthlessness of ritualism. The worthlessness, the inability, the inconsequential nature, the worthlessness of ritualism. Verse 25. Paul says, for indeed circumcision, stop right there. He's been talking to Jews since chapter two, verse one. He's been saying, you think that the Gentiles are condemned because of their deeds and because of their heart. But he's been saying, if you're a a, a hearer of the law, if you have the law, if you understand the oracles of God, if you have the scripture and yet you're not a doer, then you're in trouble just as the Gentile who's committing sin in chapter one. He's been addressing externalism versus internalism since chapter two verse one, and this is the climax of that argument. For indeed, circumcision, the sign of being Jewish, is a value. Stop right there. Now we find out that circumcision does indeed have a value, if, if it's connected to something else. if what? If you practice the law, he's just been explaining, if you're just a hearer and not a doer, then that's a problem. You have the external signs of religion, the external uh, semblances of someone who knows God, but internally, you are a dead man. You're like a whitewashed tomb. You look great on the outside, but inside, you're full of dead men's bones, Jesus said. The circumcision had value to a Jew if he was an obedient Jew. It's really simple. If he read the law, understood the law, received it as the word of God, and then applied the law, did the law. But if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Can I translate that? Your Judaism has transferred you into being a Gentile. You are the very thing that you say other Gentiles are. You say other Gentiles, the Gentiles, they're alienated from God. If you're not a doer of the law, you actually have become a Gentile alienated from God. Your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Years later, uh, reinforcing this decision, the Apostle Paul wrote to the believers. Um, In chapter four, he would say that the father of circumcision, Abraham, we'll get to this in chapter four, the father of circumcision himself was saved, drum roll, not by his circumcision. Abraham was not saved by being a Jew. Abraham was not saved because he was picked out by God because he was Jewish, because his dad was a Jew. In fact, his dad was not Jewish. Abraham, get this, when Abraham became a Jew, have you ever thought about this? When Abraham became a Jew, he was a pagan. He was a Gentile under that definition. Yet in Romans chapter four, verse 12, we find out he was not saved by anything other than his faith. What was going on in his life, in his heart, in his affections toward God. And we'll get there, Romans 4, 9 to 12. He was saved by faith rather than by circumcision. He declared circumcision, Paul did, to be of no value then unless accompanied by an obedient spirit. Now, I know you're saying, yeah, that's right, that's those Jews. They can be beat up over this issue. That's fine for them. But look at the principle here. You can have the external demonstrations of being a child of God But unless that is anchored in your heart to obedience to the word of God, you demonstrate that you're not truly his child. That's no different for a Christian than it is a Jew. The the line we draw from that indictment to the Jews to us as believers is very short line. Ritual's worthless. Ritual doesn't get you to heaven. I have to admit, when I watch the... The machinations and the movements and the censors the, the and the incense of the ritual of the Catholic Church. I just shake my head. God is not impressed with that. God is looking at the heart. Ritual, externalism, unless it's attached to an obedient heart, is worthless. You become, Paul says, a Gentile, you become the uncircumcision. He goes on though, a second consideration is in verses 26 to 27. Now he tells us to consider the authentication of obedience. He introduces us to obedience in verse 25, now he explains it more in verse 26. So, if the uncircumcised man, the Gentile, keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision, his Gentileness, be regarded as circumcision or Jewishness? Will not his alienation from God be considered close to God if what? If what? Look at the first phrase. If he keeps the requirements of the law. This would have been a shocking thought to a Jew. Unbelievable to a Jew. But critical for the Roman church to understand and grasp. Remember that church in Rome, Rome was a cosmopolitan city. Everything was there. The church at Rome was comprised of Jewish converts and Gentile believers. They were colliding, obviously, over this issue. Church at Ephesus was colliding over this issue. The church at Colossae was colliding over this issue. Read Acts 15. The early church in the demonstration of the gospel and its proclamation was colliding over this issue. Now, be a little um, compassionate and gentle with them for a moment. Jesus, now if you're in the first generation of Jews, a uh, first generation uh, uh, of Christians, think of this. Jesus was the Jewish Messiah and Savior who also offered salvation to Gentiles. It made perfect sense to those early apostles that. Christianity was simply the fulfillment of the messianic hope of Judaism. That's true. It's absolutely true. But remember Acts chapter 10. Every time, and I mean this, every time I have ham or a BLT or bacon, I thank God for Acts chapter 10. Peter was, he's already been at Galatia telling people that you have to be circumcised to be a Christian. Peter didn't get it. He said that the salvation is, is for the Jews. And if the Gentiles want to jump on board, they can. But it's mainly for the Jews. So he gives them a dream. Remember the dream, right? Drops a sheet, a big uh, PowerPoint presentation in front of him. Has him rise, pick out unclean animals, kill them, and eat them. Undoing Leviticus chapter 11 as the, one of the signatures of those bought by God. It used to be that your circumcision, your dietary laws, your, your attending synagogue, that's how people knew you were. No, no, he says, no, it's not defined by that. It was also a symbol of, not, not only was it teaching you that you can now eat anything, all things are clean to you, but it was also a symbol that God has opened the floodgate of salvation not just toward the Jews, but also toward Gentiles. As a Gentile, as someone who was not born Jewish, When I read those passages, I just pause in wonder and in thankfulness to God. Paul is saying that if a Gentile believes the gospel, God will regard him as favorably as a Jew who has believed the gospel. Remarkable. Verse 27, and he who is physically uncircumcised, this is the Gentile, if he keeps the law, Now we'll find out going through chapter 3 and chapter 4 and chapter 5 that the law here is going to play double duty. Not only is it the the understanding of all that is in the Old Testament, but the law is ultimately manifest in the gospel. He keeps the law, he obeys Christ. Will he not judge you? Who? Who? Though having the letter of the law and the circumcision are a transgressor of the law, does this mean that Gentiles will one day sit on thrones and judge Jews? That's not what it's saying at all. He's saying the very act of someone's heart being drawn into God as a Gentile, loving God, keeping his word, pursuing Him, praying to him, thankful for Christ, understanding the Jewish Messiah as his Messiah, as the world's Messiah, that that person's faith in and of itself stands as a judgment over the Jews. You'd rejected the Messiah. Instead, try to keep the law. You know, when you have an opportunity to talk to Jewish people about the gospel, what a great place to start and finish. I love Isaiah 53, great place to go. But I think an even better place to go is this. There is a better way to come to God than keeping all those rituals. It's the way Abraham actually came to God. God. It's by faith. It's by believing. It's by trusting the Messiah. It's by believing the good news that God has sent his son to die for the sins of those who believe, Jews and Gentiles alike. Look back at the text. They have the letter of the law. And not only did they have the letter of the law, they had the Mishnah, they had the Talmud, they had other writings that actually said, you know, the law is not enough. In reality, what they were saying was, we can't do all that, though." So, so they created laws that they could easily keep which would make them look like they were obedient to God. How, how many steps can you take away from your house on the Sabbath? What can you eat and not eat that was external to Leviticus 11 and the dietary laws? So he goes to verse 27, he who is physically uncircumcised, the, the Gentile, if he obeys God, keeps the law, pursues the gospel, he will be a judgment to those who have the letter of the law and circumcision, but yet they don't keep the law. It was very simple. You have the law, you don't keep the law because you don't know the God who gave the law, who is Jesus Christ, revealed in the gospel. So verse 27, is a, it's a piercing rebuke. It's an awesome rebuke to those Jews he has been describing in the previous verses who have been hearers of the law but not doers of the law, who had the unspeakable privilege of having the the law of God, the revelation of God, the prerogatives of God, the privileges of God, because they were born Jewish, but instead of being those who pursued their Judaism to God, they pursued their Judaism to be better Jews and Judaizers. The faith of the Gentile in Jesus Christ is a judgment on the Jews who should have believed quicker than the Gentiles did. Now, it's important to note that one of the intentions of God in the gospel was and is to bring Jews and Gentiles together into one family. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2 for a moment. Ephesians chapter 2. Remember, the first 10 verses of Ephesians, Paul says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God has made you alive in Christ. God has taken you from the state of being dead spiritually to alive spiritually. Because of Jesus, through the gospel, you were created to be a poem, a workmanship to God by your obedience. And then after talking about the gospel, look at the, the takeaway. Look at his, um, his, his practical application and can I just say as a footnote, one of the things that, that we need to kind of move away from is you've probably heard people say this, that the first eight chapters of Romans are doctrine, the last eight chapters are doctrine, which is the way of saying a way of saying there's no doctrine in the first eight, no practical in the last eight. Not true. Or the first three chapters of Ephesians are doctrinal, the last three chapters are doctrine, are, 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 are doctrine in the practical. Just not true. Look at this. Based on the doctrine, verse 11, therefore, Remember, there's practical application, that you, formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, that means the uncircumcised, who are called, here we find it again, the uncircumcised, I love this, by the so-called circumcision, hear his sarcasm in there, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That was the state of Gentiles. But now, in Christ Jesus, you Gentiles, who formerly were far off, this is so good, you've been brought near. You have been brought near. You were far off. You, through the gospel, have been brought near. How? By the blood of Christ, the death of the Son of God for those who believe. For he himself, he himself is our peace. Who made both groups, what groups? Circumcised, uncircumcised, Jews, Gentiles, both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing In his flesh, the enmity, the enemy nature between Jews and Gentiles, which is the law of the commandments contained in the ordinances, so that he himself, in he himself, he might make the two into one, a new man, thus establishing peace. This is peace of God, but you understand this is peace between Jews and Gentiles, peace between people of opposite affections and backgrounds in the church. And, verse 16, might reconcile them both into one body to God through the cross by having put to death the separation, put to death the enmity between Jews and Gentiles. Verse 17. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off, the Gentiles, and peace to those who are near, the Jews. The gospel, as we saw in Romans one 1.16, is for everyone. For through faith, for through him, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you who are no longer strangers and aliens, the Gentiles, but are now fellow citizens with the saints, with the Jews, are and are of God's household, having been put built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. What is all that about? Paul takes half a chapter, half a chapter in his six chapters to the Ephesians, to say, Jew, Gentile distinction gone. One body. He'll go on in chapter 4 and say, It doesn't matter our backgrounds, doesn't matter our prejudices, doesn't matter our race, doesn't matter our age. We are one body in Christ. You read Revelation, uh, it's very clear that every tribe, every tongue, every race, every nation, everyone will one day come to praise God together. The church should reflect that. This was an indictment to the Jews and an indictment to the Gentiles. You are a, what kind of creature in Christ? New creature in Christ. You are like other Christians. And can I say this? It's not just Jew and Gentile. There are so many different kinds of people in this. There are cool people. There are uncool people. At least that's what my sons tell me. I would be in the uncool category. There are tall people, short people, black people, white people, tall people, little people, uh, old, young, every color you can imagine. There are all sorts of people in the church who are supposed to by their love for one another, in spite of their differences from each other, show the world that God does amazing things in the gospel. Back to verse 27. So what's the, what's the distinguishing feature? As Jews and Gentiles, what makes them one? Their obedience to the gospel. That's the point. Their obedience to God, as we'll see in the chapter 3 and 4, which is represented in the good news of God. Well, finally, there's a third consideration for receiving praise from God. It's the priority of the heart. The priority of the heart. You had to know this was coming from all he said in these first 27 verses. The priority of the heart. Verse 28, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly. Ouch, that was a stinging rebuke to the Jews. You think you're obey you're, you you think you're approved by God because you're a Jew outwardly. You are circumcised in the flesh. Nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. Now, watch this. There is a significant contrast between verses 28 and 29. It's clearly seen by two words, outwardly and inwardly. Notice this. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one, what? Inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart. Very clear distinction from physical, surgical circumcision to something that happens spiritually in your heart. By the Spirit. Paul said to Ephesians, not made with hands not by the letter, not by legalism. And this man, this person who has a circumcised heart, his praise is not from men but from God. Moses and the prophets use the term circumcised as a symbol for purity, a symbol for readiness to hear, a symbol for readiness to obey, a, a, a term of being favored by God. Through Moses... The Lord challenged the Israelites to submit to the circumcision, though, not just of the flesh. Moses didn't just teach outward circumcision. He also taught that they should be circumcised in their heart, which is reference for repentance, obedience. If their circumcised, uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they accept their guilt, God declared, then I will remember my covenant. Listen to Deuteronomy 16. Excuse me, verse, chapter 10, verse 16. So, circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. When Moses gave that command, that that second person plural command, so circumcise, they would have expected him to say, your sons, circumcise the flesh. He says instead, circumcise your heart. Is this a physical reference? No. Can, Can you circumcise your heart? You can't. Moreover, at the end, at the very beginning at the, uh, of the, the, the crossing of the new generation into Jordan, into, over the Jordan into the promised land, listen to one of the final statements Moses makes from the book of Deuteronomy. Moreover, chapter 30, verse 6. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants. What will that look like? What does it look like when your heart is circumcised and not the flesh? What does that sound like look like? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, so that you may live. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. The circumcision of the heart means you love God himself and are not depending on God by externalism and external ritual. Jeremiah characterized rebellious Israel as having uncircumcised ears in chapter 6, verse 10 of his Prophecy, and being uncircumcised in the heart in Jeremiah nine twenty six. Why? Why were they uncircumcised in the ear, uncircumcised in their heart? Why? Because they were disobedient to God's law, God's word. They were hearers only and not doers. And listen to what Paul told the Colossians, believers, about circumcision. This is interesting. In Colossians 2.11, he says, and in him, in Jesus, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. And he goes on, even graphic, in the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. He actually appeals to the surgery and says, just as something was removed, your sinful disposition your sinful hearts the body of sin was removed by the blood of Christ in the cross and you were made new by the circumcision of the heart made without hands god did surgery spiritual surgery on your heart the believer's heart so that we now think differently feel differently have faith in something different that's the point paul makes back in romans 229 Paul says in Colossians, you, it was, the circumcision was made without hands. In Romans 2.29, he says that the circumcision, so this circumcision was by the spirit, not by the letter. The accent put here is on the spirit of God's work in salvation. To be saved by the spirit, not the letter of the law. You can't do enough, you can't try hard enough, you can't stack up enough good works where God will say, now I approve. Only the spirit of God can quicken the heart to have faith in Christ to be accepted by God. By the way, the readers would be asking by this point, the Jewish readers, what? I mean, put yourself in their togas for a minute, okay? They're reading this, they're going, he has just hammered us for being Jews and trusting in our Jewishness for a whole chapter. 29 verses of getting hammered about that. They would have asked, then what's the point? What advantage is it? of even being Jewish at all. Chapter three, verse one. We'll get here next time. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the benefit of the, of the circumcision? Now don't miss this. Before we throw everything under the, under the bus, he says, verse two, great in every respect. Why? First of all, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. It goes back to God's word again. We praise God that He chose Abraham. We praise God that the Jewish nation will one day be restored and love their Messiah. We praise God He is not finished with Israel, but we also praise God that the instruction that He gave to them He now shares with us as Gentiles. Where does this all go? Where's the land? Where's the lead? Look at the last phrase. And his praise is not from men, but from God. Now he, at this final little wrap-up of this confrontation with the Jew, he identifies the entire trajectory, the entire direction, the entire goal of unsaved Judaism. It was all done to be praised by who? Others, by men, to show Using religion, using public standing in religious formats and in forums so that people look at you and say, ah, he, she is spiritual. The fear of man, the glory of man, a desire to be admired by and adored by and praised by men, that was the problem with first century second temple gnomism or Judaism. They wanted people to like them, to love them, to look up. Look, look they wore uh, you know, the, these phylacteries that hung off of their head and off of their wrist. They did everything they could. They dressed a certain way. So the people would look at them and say, ooh, ah, praised by God, affectioned by, by, by God. These are people who know God, and they were saying, we want to be known as and proud of the fact that God favors us when they had no relationship with God. They had a relationship with the mirror. They loved being praised by men. And in the entire upside-down, topsy-turvy reversal, God says, no, the circumcision of the heart, actually, you won't be praised by men all the time. In fact, most of the time you won't. But you will, look at this, find the praise of God. Is that, does that blow you away? That God might elbow the angels and say, he's mine, she's mine. Look at that obedience. Look at that repentance. That God would praise someone, a worthless, wretched worm as I, as we sing, a sinner. Why? Because of the work that Christ has done and is doing in the life of the believer. That's what he praises. That's all he can praise. And that's the work of, look at the text, his spirit in our lives. So the issue, this whole uh, chapter really ends in the issue of asking ourselves, like the Jews, about inward authenticity versus external ritual, external demonstrations to try to gain the praise of men in the name of religion rather than receive and seek the praise of God. So what's the takeaway for us? Well, real simple, the human heart's still the same. It's not just the Jews alone who trusted in externals for God's approval. It's not just the Jews alone that trusted in externals to gain the approval of men. It's you and me, isn't it? How do we pray? What do we pray? What do we wear? Where do we go? How do we talk about the Bible? How do we talk at church? How do we talk at home? Is that the same? Is religion something that's externally motivated for our glory and our praise? It's a spiritual mistake the Jews made and it's easily made by us as well. The issue to consider is this. Are our religious efforts aimed at impressing men or impressing God? I was reading uh, one of the Puritans um, not long ago, uh, Richard Baxter, who basically said his starting point in relationships with, with believers Ready for this? His starting point is they're never doing as well as they look. They're never as holy as they seem. They're never as godly as they appear. He says, "I have that disposition with others because I know my own heart." Now that we shouldn't bring rocks to throw to each other, but I mean, think about a typical conversation. Hey, brother! Brother seems to sanctify the conversation. Hey, brother, how are you doing? I'm great. Really? Really? Why are you great? I'm good. And look, I understand. I say that all the time. I'm doing good. I'm fine. What's the presupposition in our relationships? I mean, we should really say, hey, brother, how's repentance going this week? How's your heart today? The superficial nature of relationships in the church are such a mirror of the superficial assumptions that were being made in the early synagogues. Would you look for just a very brief moment with me at Isaiah chapter 66? Remember Isaiah... Prophesying, teaching, preaching, sixty-six chapters of sixty-five chapters of dealing with people's hearts versus their external rituals. And he finishes, he concludes his prophecy by saying this, thus thus says the Lord. We sang it just a few minutes ago. Heaven is my throne and earth (laughs) just my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me? You think the temple's impressive, which by all standards was the most expensive building ever made? Which by all standards was the most beautiful building ever erected? Where's a house you can build for me? Ha! Where's a place I may rest? You're gonna make something I'm gonna dwell in, you're gonna make something I can rest in. Listen, my hands made all these things. All these things actually came into being by me, declares the Lord. I'm not looking for externalism. I'm not looking for what you can do to point people to to say, look, this is a godly building. This is a godly demonstration. What what are you looking for, God? To this one I will look. Wow, you better listen to that. Underline, highlight, star, asterisk, turn the page down, whatever you want to do, here it is. But to this one God says, I will look. To him who is humble... Knows his place before God, knows his place before others, contrite in spirit, knows his spiritual destitution and his need for a savior, and who trembles at my word, who is not just a hearer, but a what? A doer. Not just for the Jews. Are you humble? Are you contrite in spirit? Does God's word make you shake, tremble, stop in awe and in wonder? The great God, the giver of the word, was wrapped in swaddling clothes and lay in a manger, was born to die. The good news is that God requires our perfection to go to heaven. We are undone. But there was one who was perfect who said, I will give you my perfect standing before God. I will give you that, and watch this, and I'll take your sin on myself and die for it on the cross and rose from the dead and offers us perfect standing with God. Really? Really? So that God looks at us and says, covered, declared righteous. As righteous in my standing and in my sight. It's almost hard for me to say this. As my son himself. That's good news. Amazing news. I hope that you have received him as your Lord and Savior. If you haven't, we'd love to talk to you in the building, in the prayer room, any way we can. Father, Amazing love, how can it be that you, God, have died for me? You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com.